You are listening to the Resonate Church Sermon Podcast. Resonate is a collegiate church planning network in the Northwest. If you'd like to learn more, please visit us at resonate.net. Hey, Resonate, we are in a series called Never Lost, where we're exploring God's heart for people who are far from Him in the Gospel of Luke. And last week, we got an incredible opportunity to hear from Pastor Stephen and his biceps, really explaining what a person of peace is. And really what's so great about this is really looking at how uh, God is already working in the lives of the people around us, that, that God is doing something as God is doing something. It's not weird or awkward for us to be able to join him where he is already at work and for us to be able to understand that we're simply there as a partner to what God is already doing and figuring out what does it look like for us to discern and have eyes to see the people around us. And so we, we were there last week. The week before, we were in a story or a collection of stories in Luke 15. And Luke 15, what Jesus is doing is he's having a moment and he's telling three parables and this thing starts with this, uh, w- with this interaction with a couple of people. And I want us to go back to that and be able to understand what we're talking about here. It says this in, uh, in Luke chapter 15, verse one, it says, now the tax collectors and the sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled saying, this man receives sinners and eats with him. And this is a fascinating moment because we see Jesus the rabbi, the teacher, and we see him doing something that it seems like it's off and especially off for those who are the insiders, the religious people of the age. So what he's doing is he's hanging out with those who aren't the insiders. He's hanging out with those who are the tax collectors and the sinners. And whatever that would be like, you know, just the the term sinners, like say you're hanging out with the sinners, right? However they determined that, Jesus was prioritizing this group of people instead of the religious insiders. And they believe that Jesus is prioritizing the wrong thing. And they are frustrated because of this. And what we see here is one, when Jesus is around those with spiritual needs, they're drawn to those to those answers. They're drawn to Jesus. And whenever we reveal Jesus, we have to understand this draws people with deep spiritual needs. And so what happens is with that setting, Jesus takes and he, he does what only Jesus does. He takes and he just drops a truth bomb. Like he just drops this moment where he begins to say, hey, this, this is a truth. And he does it in the coolest way. He tells stories. And we begin to have three stories. So uh, two weeks ago, we started with a first story. And this first story is this story of uh, the shepherd with a hundred sheep. And as he tells about this, he tells about this reality that this shepherd that has a hundred sheep has one sheep that is lost. And he says this, uh, which one of you, he says, this is what would be, should be normal, is that you would leave the 99 and go after the one. And this is a stark understanding of what it looks like and what the priority of heaven is, right? And so Jesus talks about, hey, this is what happens. This is what it looks like on earth. But then he begins to give us some insight and he begins to say, hey, this is not just an earthly thing, but we begin to see the scoreboard of heaven, what matters in heaven. And so he begins to talk about this reality that heaven, when when there's this thing that happens where there's transformation, it elicits a celebration. It elicits something that begins to say, hey, this is important. So this is a fast, if we're trying to figure out what matters, what's the scoreboard of heaven? We talked about this this reality that that Jesus goes after the one, that the priority is the one. 
And that might be hard for us to hear, especially if we're here and we've had a background. We say, this is kind of my life is dedicated to following Christ, that really that Jesus would prioritize those who are far from him. That might be hard for us to really uh, digest and be able to say, hey, that makes sense to us. Um, but this is what Jesus does. He tells this story and he tells this reality that, man, that makes people grumble. And so then he tells a story about the lost coin. And you can read that same kind of idea that there's a massive celebration when it comes to something that is found that was lost. And then he arrives at a story that we're going to look at today. And the story that we're going to look at today is called the story of the prodigal son. And this might be something that you um, know of if you're you know, have been around church and you've heard this story, but, but even after, outside of that, this idea of the prodigal son is, is so well known because of how powerful the imagery is and how powerful this story is. And Jesus takes these stories and he tells them back to back to back. And it really climaxes with this moment where he talks about this story of the prodigal son. So I want to read this to us, and it's a bit of a long read in terms of being able to tell the story. But the impact that this had and the reality of what Jesus is saying to them um, cannot be underestimated. And so I hope that we can pull that out today. And I hope that uh, today you're, you're in a place where you can hear this story and the Holy Spirit is working in your heart and you're open to hear this because I think God has something to say to us. So this is Luke chapter 15, verse 11 through 32. It says this, and he said, there's a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me my share of the property that is coming to me. Now, this is crazy because he's actually asking for, you know, his inheritance while his father is still alive. So that is a radical statement. Hey, I don't want to wait till you're dead. I, I wish you were dead so I could get half of my property right now. And so he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when, they had spent, when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. And so he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. He effectively sold him into, himself into being a slave for this person. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. Here he goes. He has everything. Now he's at the bottom. But, then he, but when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I will perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father. And I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. There's just a turning moment in his life right now. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, this is a powerful moment. His father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to the servants, quickly bring the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. And now his older son was in a field and he came and he drew near to the house 
and he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what, this, what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. And so his father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you and I've never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But within son, when the son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this, your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Now this story, as we think about Jesus in this moment, telling this to this group of people would have been an overwhelming moment. It would have been this moment where, as he begins to unpack this story, they're riveted to this. That they, they listen to this and the implications of what Jesus is saying is just groundbreaking, earth shattering. It's an overwhelming thing. And for us, we need to press in to be able to understand what Jesus is actually saying in this moment. So in this, uh, we could divide this into act one and act two, basically around the younger brother and the older brother. In act one with the younger brother, we see this, this reality where he has this, uh, this desire for self-discovery, this desire to be able to go out and discover the world on his own, this desire to be able to have all that he is owed, all that he is entitled to have, and to go out and to live whatever way he wants to live. And we see this reflection of these choices. It said that he squandered his money. He squandered these resources. And then he's in a place that's the lowest of low, where he's looking at what the pigs are eating and saying, actually, that's bad. I don't have anything. And we think about the height to be able to say, I have all this money. I'm going to go out to this world and to the, in the depth of being able to say, here I am in this massive moment of need. And in that moment, he has this realization. And this realization is that it would be better, even if he's a slave in his father's house, to go back to his father's house. And so he goes. And as he goes, here's this crazy moment in the story. He goes thinking, man, I'll, I'll just be a servant. I'm not worthy of being a son. I've done all these terrible things. I've squandered all this. This is my last real chance. And it says this, while he was still a long way off, the father comes running out to the son. You think that this is this moment where the father should have felt shame that this, that, that this son of his took and embarrassed him. This, this son of his took, took advantage of him. And yet what happens is he takes and he runs. This is not what a, a Jewish patriarch would be doing, that they would never run. They would have to take up um, you know, their, uh, their cloak. It, it was not an easy thing. It was not an elegant thing for them to go and run. 
the fact that he's waiting and he sees him a, a ways off even speaks to this idea that, that he's waiting for his son to get there. And at the arrival of this, there's still this sense of the son has a speech to say to his, to his dad, dad, I don't deserve this. D- dad, I, I've messed up. I, I don't deserve any of this. I've sinned against you. I've sinned against heaven. And the father is, is there ready, ready to embrace him, full of compassion. And for us, we don't need to miss this moment because as we begin to say, this is what repentance looks like. We have to understand that on the other side of us recognizing this reality, because all of us get to this place, and many of you are lived this this reality out, that you've walked your own path, that you've done the self-discovery thing, that you've tried the things, that you've figured out that actually it doesn't give you what you want, that it's a dead end, that, that at some point that this doesn't actually take your heart and make it where it's full, that there's no satisfaction in this thing. Some of you are in the midst of exploring stuff and you haven't found that way, that, that yet, but there's a moment where, where we get to this thing and we begin to say, I don't want to do it my own way anymore. I don't want to do it without the love, the support, the connection to my heavenly father. But what keeps us oftentimes from the pivot back, from the immediate realization, is what we think about the Father and what we think is waiting for us. So Jesus tells us very specifically. He tells us in earshot of the tax collectors and the sinners, and right now it's in the earshot of us too, that whenever that moment comes, when we begin to say, this might not be the way that we should live, this might not be the way that we want to ultimately perceive our life and pursue um, the passions, and we begin to recognize this doesn't actually satisfy. As we return, we are met not by a shame-filled, I told you so, We're not met by a heavenly father that is mad at us or disappointed with us or or is waiting for us to live through the the consequences of our actions. We're there being met by a heavenly father who takes and embarrasses himself trying to run to us so that he might get to us, embrace us, kiss us, and to be able to show his compassion upon us. And in the moments wherever you're at, if at some point you think, I, I don't deserve this, or is God going to be mad, or, or am I going to be met by something other than, other than the love and acceptance of God, this is what keeps us from repentance. And I think for us, we stay distant from God that we might protect ourselves from what we perceive of God. Instead of being able to say, man, it is my joy to continually repent. It's my joy to take and say, I was wrong. It's my joy to return to the compassionate arms of my heavenly father. And this is something we need to hear and we need to be reminded of. And we need to understand that this is who he is. And that what we see is a massive celebration around the moments of repentance. And for us to believe that we're not going to be met with a requirement, but we are going to be met with celebration. As we turn back to God, this is, a, this is the moment to celebrate. And this is the heart of God for us. That's act one.
And we need to make sure that we understand act one. And we need to make sure that we embrace and understand what it means for us to, uh, to, to really in our bones know that there is a compassionate father on the other side of our choices, no matter what those choices are, waiting to embrace the transformation that we have when we orient back to him. This beautiful moment, what does he say? Not just, hey, I, I don't have anywhere to go, but he admits, I've sinned against you. I've sinned against heaven. It's clear that he says, I've seen that my ways aren't better than your ways. And here's my hope for you and me, that God would be gracious enough for us that he wouldn't let us linger in our ignorance and our stupidity and our foolishness, but our sins would be found out, that the consequences would be severe enough to take and change our hearts so that we might be able to experience the compassionate love of our Heavenly Father and experience the grace of the gospel. This is our hope. This is why I pray for my kids, that their, their sins would be found out, um, that we might not linger in that place of distance, but be reconnected to our Heavenly Father. This is Act 1. Now, the interesting thing is, as we think about the story of the prodigal son, Act 1 is oftentimes that place where we are focused, where it's a beautiful moment, and, and where we really spend most of our time. But Jesus didn't tell this for Act 1. The point of this parable is Act 2. And Act 2 is not about the younger brother. Act 2 is about the older brother. This whole collection of stories, this whole beginning of this chapter, this moment that comes from the tax collectors and the sinners gathered around Jesus and the grumbling of the religious people, all of this leads up to the Act 2 part of this, where Jesus begins to introduce the older brother. So in the older, older brother, here's what we see. We see him who becomes aware of something that is going on in the house. And as he becomes aware of what is going on in the house, he asks, asks one of the servants, what's going on? And they begin to say, hey, this is the younger brother. And this is what has happened. He has come back and the father has thrown a celebration for him. In that moment, you begin to see something that Jesus is trying to extract and shine a spotlight on. The older brother does not have a compassionate response. The older brother doesn't say, thank the Lord that our younger brother, my younger brother is back. His response is the same as the grumbling of the scribes and the Pharisees. It's anger. It's frustration. It's hold it. That's not fair. Hey, you've never done that for me. Hold on. This whole idea of what this is about is really messed up. This thing that I've been working and working, and you've never done this for me, you've never given me this thing, instantly we begin to see what is bubbling up under the surface. And we see this older son who is faithfully served. We see this older son who's done everything that he needs to be, he needs to do, it, this, this older son that seems like he's checked all the boxes. And now we begin to see what's underneath the surface. And this is profound. Because in this, we see that this story is not just about one lost son, but it's about two lost sons. 
And in this story, we see one lost son that is lost and then found. And then one where Jesus ends the story and the older son who is separated from his father remains separated from his father. And as we look at what happens at the end, we begin to see a younger son who's reunited in fellowship as a son. You see an older, the the older son is still in this place of distance from his father. Why? Because of the goodness and the compassion of his father. And that goodness and compassion did not lead him to be able to be pulled into that, but to be able to say, that's wrong. Now, this is profound because under the two patterns of very different behavior, what you begin to see is both sons had the same motivation. Both are using the father in different ways to get the things on which their hearts are truly fixed. It was wealth, not the love of their father that they believed would make them happy and fulfilled. That the younger son thought that the wealth that's given in this way would ultimately allow him to have what his heart was fixated on. The, younger, the older brother, it was the same thing. It wasn't that I get this. At the very end, the, all, the, the, the father reminds him, hey, you are my son. Everything that I have is yours. He reminds him of the relationship. But the goal for the older brother is not the relationship, but is the stuff that he gets from the older or from his father. And this is key because what happens is we see that they're both alienated. The younger son does the wrong things. And here's the reality that the older son does the right things, but for the wrong reasons. And this is key because what, the, what Jesus is saying is that he doesn't divide the world between good people and bad people. The, God, the gospel tells us that everyone is wrong. Everyone is loved. And everyone is invited into, into this recognition of what the repentance and change needs to look like. There's, there's a story that, that kind of illustrates this. And it goes like this. Once upon a time, there was a gardener who grew an enormous carrot. So he took it to his king and said, my Lord, this is the greatest carrot I've ever grown or will grow. Therefore, I want to present it to you as a token of my love and my respect for you. The king was touched and discerned the man's heart. And so he turned to go. And so as he turned to go, the king said, wait, you are clearly a good steward of the earth. I own a plot of land right next to yours. I want to give it to you freely as a gift so that you can garden it all. And the gardener was amazed and delighted and went home rejoicing. But there was a nobleman in the king's court who overheard this. And he said, my, if that's what you can get for a carrot, what if the king, what if you gave the king something better? And so the next day, the nobleman came to the king and he was leading a handsome black stallion. And he bowed low and he said, my Lord, I breed horses. This is the greatest horse I've ever bred or ever will. Therefore, I want to present it to you as a token of my love and respect for you. But the king discerned his heart and said, thank you. And took the horse and merely dismissed him. The nobleman was, com- was perplexed. So the king said, let me explain. The gardener was giving me the carrot, but you were giving yourself 
the horse. See, in this, as we think about our relationship with our Heavenly Father, we have to understand that it is not just our deeds, but it's our heart that He's after. And when we do the right things for the wrong reasons, when we begin to behave as if I'm going to, I'm going to do these things that seem like they're expected from someone who follows Jesus, but ultimately we're doing those to be able to receive something for ourselves. We play a game with our Heavenly Father. We play a game where we begin to say, I'm going to continue to use you for my gain. That I don't want my relationship with you. I still just want the things that you have to give. And so when we begin to live this out, our righteousness is ultimately a ploy to get something from God. And we might not even realize that we're doing this. But this is oftentimes what our hearts can be drawn to. This is the temptation in this. That as we begin to think about what it means to be the older brother in this story, that there is a, there is a temptation towards this. A temptation towards us that are doing the motions, but, but not actually experiencing Jesus. That, that we might be uh, deeply angry for things because we believe that if we do these things that God should provide these things. Or, or we might be um, joyless and, and feel like we have to have this um, fear-based compliance or else something's going to go wrong. And it's not out of joy that we connect with our Heavenly Father. It's out of fear. It, it might be that we constantly think we have to live into a place where, where over and over we're saying, I, I've got to I've got to do these things to win the affection of my heavenly father. And so we don't have this assurance of his love for us. And that creates deep insecurity. It creates um, sensitivity to criticism. It creates um, places where we don't know how to resolve our guilt. It, re it results in a dry prayer life. And this is what is easy for us to fall into. And this is the, the older son. And this is this thing that he's saying to this group of people, hey, this is a temptation. This is easy to fall into. The older son is this, is this moment where they would hear this and they might be able to recognize, hey, this is, this is who we are. But even in this, the message of these three stories goes even deeper. In the first story, you see the shepherd and what happens to the lost thing he goes, he leaves the 99, and he goes to the lost sheep. You see the second story. The widow takes and she stops everything and she looks for the coin. She goes and searches for the coin. In this story, there's something that's absent. And that is someone that goes searching for the younger brother. Someone that says, we've got to go find him. We, we've got to go discover where he's at. We've got to go pursue and to be able to win him back, bring him back. This is not wise. This is not right. This is not healthy. This is, doesn't allow him to flourish. So we're going to be able to do that. And Jesus understands the Bible, right? He understands this whole narrative and he tells this story very specifically. Because as they would have understood it and as they would have heard this story, it becomes clear that the problem is that the older brother is supposed to go look for the younger brother. The older brother 
His responsibility is to say, Father, I will take, and at my own expense, I will go after my younger brother. I will go seek after my younger brother. I will go and I will take and, and, and I will find him. That is my role. That is my responsibility. But in this, we don't see that happen. And that screams to people who would have been hearing this story. That in this moment, it is the role of the older brother to be able to seek what is lost. And so in this moment, what we would see is this. What we would see is that Jesus is telling this story to these people. And as Jesus is telling this story to to these people, he's telling this in a way that reveals that he is the older brother. That Jesus' role is to come into this world, to be able to pursue what is lost. That as he's doing these things with his sinners and the tax collectors, he's doing the role of the older brother. He's going after what is lost at great personal sacrifice for him to live his life, to be able to, to pay the penalty of our sin upon the cross, and for him to be able to ultimately give his life to be able to find what is lost. And this is what we see, that Jesus puts a flawed older brother into the story. Why? That we might yearn for a true older brother, for the true older brother that would go after the lost, for the true older brother that would say, I'm, it is my role, it is my responsibility, it is my joy, to be able to bring what is lost into a compassion-filled relationship with the Father. So as we begin to think about this, what Jesus is telling these people is the same thing he's telling us. Now, as we understand that being the hands and feet of Jesus, we have the role of the older brother. And as we have the role of the older brother, we have to understand the weight of this story to us. That our world is not oriented to try to figure out how do I get God to do my thing? How is it that I orchestrate my spiritual life solely to meet my personal needs? How is it that I see all this in order for me to be at the center? But here's what Jesus is saying, as as people who are the older brothers, it's our role, it's our job to pursue those who are lost, to go after our one. And, And here's where I want us to get this true reality, is that at our core, we have to want people to experience transformation. At our core, we have to want people to, to be able to go and have the experience where they're in front of our Heavenly Father and they, and they say, I'm not worthy, I've, I've sinned, and they get received in the arms and the kisses and the compassion of their Heavenly Father. And that's got to be something that thrills our soul. That has to be something where we say, this is what I live for. 
This is one of the greatest things in our life for us to be able to say the transformation of those who are far to those who are near. The, 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 the moment where we begin to see the repentance of someone who says, I'm not going to do it my way. I'm going to do it God's way. That should be the celebration, not just of heaven, the celebration of our very hearts for us to want that, for us to long for that, for us to be able to say, this is the kind of church that we need to be for us to be able to be focused out on what it looks like for transformation to happen all around us, even if it means it comes at our expense. Uh, from the very beginning, uh, we started this church in Pullman, Washington. So you might be all over uh, the United States hearing this in the Northwest at one of our sites, um, but Resonate started in Pullman, Washington. And for the last 14 years, we have, we have operated out of, uh, out of this as the kind of first place that we had a church. And then what has been foundational and fascinating to be able to see is that as we have begun to recognize that God has not just called us to, to focus something here, to just be able to say, hey, this is all about Pullman. It's all about Washington State University. As we've begun to recognize that the scoreboard of heaven calls us to look out to look at people that we don't even know, to go to campuses that we have no knowledge of anyone there, to be able to say, this, this is the scoreboard of heaven. What has happened over and over is we've seen, um, we, we've had Pullman that gives of itself in order for other people to flourish. And I think this is a beautiful illustration of what this is all about that we've had people come into our church and say, I know that if I'm going to be here, it's going to be different than maybe other churches in town that have uh, more elaborate kids things and, and more elaborate youth things and, and more elaborate family things. But I, but I want to be able to focus on being able to be a part of this mission, of being able to be a part of something. And it might come at great personal cost. And I want you to know, like for, for our family, we've, we've had kids that have kind of built in the, the children's ministry and the youth ministry. And, um, and, and it's been difficult at times. It's been times where sometimes you're like, oh, I just want this to happen. And we have to check our hearts and to be able to say, hey, are we in this because we want these things for ourselves? Are we in this because we want to have a heart that goes out to see transformation? That we begin to see these moments where you see baptism services and you begin to say, hey, I was like this and now I'm like this. I was lost, I was found, I was dead, I'm alive. You're like, this is what it's all about. I'll take and, and be able to say, hey, man, these programs not, might not be built out. If we can just be around more and more transformation, more and more loss that is found, more and more things that reflect the scoreboard of heaven. And so we, we get to do this. And so we've had people um, who've le left our church and uh, we, people who say that hey, we have the finances to hire all these people to, to do our kids and, and youth and, and families. Why don't we have that? And as we think about that, we sit at the feet of Jesus, and I think we have to let the scoreboard of heaven transform our hearts. And when he points and says, hey, we will give and serve and go, and we'll pick up the slack because we have the opportunity to send people out to meet people who might never have the opportunity to hear about Jesus. And maybe it's at great personal cost. But this is what it looks like to go after the lost son. This is what it looks like to go after the one. E even in this season of pandemic, Pullman decided 
We're going to send out a church plant team to Salt Lake City. And in this difficult time, as they pass their budget, more money is going out from the Pullman site than is remaining in Pullman site. 51% is going out. This priority is that we are sending more out than we are keeping for ourselves. That, that they decided that, that they are going to, even at great cost, continue to send leaders out, to send core team members out, to be able to say, it might be more difficult for us to do ministry here, but we get to see something start at the University of Utah. And, and this last week, it's been amazing to hear the stories of that team that's landed there in the University of Utah is having conversations that had crazy ideas that got to share the gospel 40, 50 times in the last week because people came from this place, went to that place, not because it was easy, but because we're oriented around the one. They're oriented around seeking the lost, that we're saying we're gonna go after the younger son. And this is the beauty of what we get to be a part of. And this is why I love our church because we're saying this is what the scoreboard of heaven looks like. And so for us personally, the temptation is for us to be the older son. The, the older son that begins to say, how can I make this more comfortable? But the kingdom of God beckons us to put on our cloak at our own personal expense and say, I'm going after my one. And why do we go after our one? Because at some point our hearts are so deeply formed from the action of heaven that, that heaven celebrates, from repentance and transformation. And we celebrate that. And we don't just celebrate that at conference. We come into our worship environments and we say, God, I think there's something for you. We go into our huddles and we say, God, transform me. We go into the daily parts of our lives and we begin to say, make my heart soft because heaven celebrates repentance. May we be people who are overwhelmed at repentance and restoration. And may we be people who want to see this more than anything else in our life. And the strategies of our life more than anything else are how do I leverage my life to see more transformation, to be able to see more repentance that leads to people discovering the compassionate love of our Heavenly Father. This is what I love about our church. And this is what I love about what we get to do this is what I want to continue to call us to, to go after our one, to be people who say, I want to see transformation happen over and over and over. May we be these people that we follow in the footsteps of our Heavenly Father and we go after the younger son. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you for this moment that we get to see this story and may this story land in our hearts like it must have landed in the hearts of uh, the, the, the Pharisees, the tax collectors, uh, the sinners, uh, and, and the scribes, that, that this whole group of people find the truth of the gospel. May we be people who repent, repent freely and orient our life around your work in the world around us. We ask all this in your holy name. Amen. We love you guys. Thank you for listening to the Resonate Church Sermon Podcast. If you are a college student in the Northwest, or if you simply want to see college students come to know Jesus, please connect with us by visiting Resonate.net.